Hello, hello, howdy, greetings, salutations. Welcome to Artworks. My name is Spencer Thomas, and this is the first episode. Thank you for listening. I put this off for a while, I have to be very honest with you. Uh, I tried to do these interviews in October. Um, I got a handful in, and it was really enjoyable. And I started editing the episodes, and I was trying to think, like, what is my thing? Am I going to do this rambling monologue at the beginning, like Mark Marin, or am I going to be, or am, am I going to keep it short and sweet and maybe read poetry like Joe Pug from Working Songwriter? I'm like, who am I as a podcaster? And I was like, oh, fuck it. It's your first time. Just do the damn thing. We'll get to the reason why I finally decided to do the damn thing in a second. But my purpose for artworks is to find the fine line between passion and production of my creative friends of all different types. And I want to dig into the nitty gritty because I want to know exactly how hard they work and the troubles and tribulations that they have to deal with in order to make their art accessible to us to appreciate on a deep level. The other day, I went out for a walk. And it's a beautiful day, and I receive a call from my friend and podcast host of Crash and Ride and drummer of 5-8 and Vic Chestnut and R.E.M.'s Mike Mills and who else? Bill Maloney of Vigilantes of Love, Mr. Patrick Ferguson. And he said, hey, Spencer how are you? And I said, I'm doing pretty good, Patrick. And he goes on to tell me that he's working on this song and he's not much of a songwriter, but he's almost at the finish line and he wanted me to help. And I said, absolutely. We go on to talk about our jobs that we're working while we can't quite play music at the level that we did. And uh, it was just lovely talking to him. And he told me that he was having a hard time with his latest podcast episode. And I told him, I was like, well, man, remember that interview we did back in October? I couldn't quite get it off the ground. And he said, oh, well, that's a shame. I think you should. So we agreed on a deadline. And I said, all right, man, I'm going to make it happen. So if you want to hear this long lost episode of me and Patrick... Strap the fuck in, homies. Let's go. I think it's going now. Can you hear me? Hey, it's fine. Okay. Right on. Well, Patrick, it is such a pleasure to uh, have you start this experiment of a podcast with me. Man, it's such an honor to be the first guest. You're the, the first guest on Crash and Ride, my podcast, has ended up becoming the sort of executive producer of the show. Oh, wow. Okay, well, so for somebody who has just begun uh, a podcast, what was it like to put together your first episode? 
Well, you know, there was a lot of technology involved that I was just like testing the week prior, like trying to figure out how to record Skype calls and 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 trying to figure out like is my interface, my recording interface that I use going to be seen by Skype and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. but you know, it all worked out eventually. Um, it 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 was a lot of like herding cats, but you know, I have some experience as a recording engineer first and foremost, so yeah. that that made the experience of kind of moving the audio out of Skype and into Pro Tools a lot easier. Yeah, and uh, really brush up on your editing skills. Oh, man. You know, I <laughs> I know there are people who, like, just blast through a podcast and then just, like, hit stop and then save and then post. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm way too fussy for that. Like I, I pull up the interview and pro tools edit window and I take out all the breaths and I try to take out any false starts, you know? Yeah. I I want everybody to, I don't want everyone, anybody to come on my podcast and be like, man, I, 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 he made me sound like a dork or like feel judged or like, I want everybody's crash and ride experience to be super positive. So yeah. I, uh, there's a guy named Kona Neutron. I was on his podcast, which is called Protonic Reversal. And he does like four a week. Like he just gets somebody on the air and records it and then downloads it and then posts it. And I'm just like, oh my God, man. Like he's on episode 297. Oh, wow. Mind blowing. I don't ever feel that poised, you know? <laughs> well, you know, I, I am with you on that. Uh, I feel like there is a lot to be said about the post production. <laughs> process and the editing that that goes into it you know and and i guess i'm just starting to to kind of get my hands around around that um but you started in what was it march of last year is that about right yeah right before south by southwest oh wow yeah right before what is the last south by southwest for a while yeah. Strangely enough, if you think about it. Yeah, you know, um I've talked to a bunch of people and of course everyone's just you know, reading tea leaves right now, but mm-hmm. I think that we're probably not gonna see a resumption of normal business for live music until at least April, which you know, puts the kibosh on South by Southwest twenty twenty one too. Which How it sucks. <laughs> yeah, so so I've never been. Uh, I imagine you have gone in many different facets. Oh man, I've been going since the nineties. I went. To, I think I went to the third South by Southwest. Wow, what year was that? Ninety two, I think. Hold on, let me find out. I'm, I'm sitting at a computer. Let me stop. <laughs> uh, just pulling numbers out of my ass. Let's see. S X S W Wiki. When did this thing start? South by Southwest, 87. So it was probably the 7th or 8th South by Southwest I went to the first time. 92 or 93 was our first one. Okay. And that was with 5.8? And it was so grassroots then. Yeah, it was 5.8. We, yeah. we, we had a record out on Sky Records out of Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. And uh, at the time, it was predominantly like indie rock. And it was mostly like bands and vans that were playing. And it was up and down 6th Street, which is the big sort of party district in Austin. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it was a little bit bigger than that, but not much. Like, there was a softball game on Sunday 
that was like industry versus bands, <laughs> you know, like publicists, managers, booking agents, and attorneys on one team, and then bands on the other. And, oh uh, wow! And I would have thought if you told me on Saturday night, man, tomorrow the bands are going to be way more hungover than you know the industry people. I would have believed it. But then the next day, man, I, I saw some people. On the industry side, I was like, oh, you're treating South by Southwest like spring break. Yeah. So, I mean, but it was low key, man. Like, I think the big vendor was like a taco truck. You know, like it was not like the last, not the last time I went, but the year before it was like the Doritos stage presents (laughs) Lady Gaga. You know, it was like, this. it was so many millions of light years away from what it was the first time I went. Yeah. I still love going to South by Southwest because I, I have a bunch of international bands that I play with. There's a couple of bands from New Delhi yeah. that I, I met when Five Eight did a, a festival over there. And there's, of course, the Tokyo band, Pinky Doodle Poodle, the, yeah. the rock band from Tokyo I play with. And um, like I'll do 15 or 16 or 17 shows in the space of a week. And wow. You know, and be speaking a little Japanese here and a little Hindi there and some French there. Like, it's a crazy week. Uh, and, you, yeah, at the end of the week, you just basically pour me into the van and, and I'm just a puddle all the way back to Georgia. Oh, man. You said New Delhi? Yeah. So 5-8 got asked to do a, um, a festival in the Himalayas. There's a couple of promoters, um, wow. a couple of really cool guys, a guy named Anoop, a guy named Randeep. They live in New Delhi. They have a band, a really cool band. They have been active in the in the sort of rock music industry in in India for years. And they had this idea, like if if you look so so imagine you're looking at a map of India mm-hmm. and you sort of got this sort of vaguely South America or Africa shaped country, you know. Yeah. Um, but in the northeasternmost part of India, there's a little passageway through the Himalayas that narrows down to where it's only 17 kilometers wide. And they call that the chicken neck um, because uh, like it's always been a vulnerability point politically and, and militarily. But on the other side of that is Assam, which is this enormous province that is where almost all the tea in India is grown in Assam. You've heard of Assam tea. That's where it comes from. And wow. in the chicken neck on the other side of the chicken neck. So this is okay. like, passageway through the Himalayas and I think Tibet and Nepal are on either side and you can see as you fly over the chicken neck you can see Mount Everest like from the plane it's crazy because we flew into New Delhi and then we flew up to Dibrugar which is the capital of Assam and then we got in like Land Rovers and drove another six and a half hours northeast to the far northeastern edge of India which is another like Assam is what they call uh, a Pradesh which just basically means state and Arunachal which is the extremely far northeastern state in the furthest reaches of the Himalayas that India goes in the east is a contested territory with China because of Tibet borders. And, um, and of course, China has occupied Tibet for, I guess, 20 years now. Mm -hmm. But that is the sort of Alaska or like front range of the Rockies in Colorado. It's like, it's, it's, it's not a religious area so much. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of like New Delhi strongly Hindu and then like Hyderabad in the South of India is strongly Muslim. And like this part of India is largely kind of the wild West, you know, the the people smoke weed and 
Like there's not a lot of dietary, like, you know, if you so much as like hurt a cow in New Delhi, like a mob will descend on you with sticks. And oh yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, you know, it's a, it's a big religious thing, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't see anybody eating beef in the Northeastern territories, but it was just looser. Like it felt like, you know, it felt like being in Denver or something um, yeah. 20 years ago. Like yeah. it, it just feels like the frontier. And so these guys, my buddies from New Delhi, like they go up there to party. They fly into Divrigar and then they catch a train when they're traveling solo or they rent a car when they're moving musicians or like, <laughs> and, and they have these two festivals, the Zero Festival, which is in the Zero Valley and the Orange Festival, which is in Dambuk. We played the Orange Festival and mm-hmm. like bands from all over the world play this thing. Tangerine Dream played the year we played, you know, the German synth band and Ingve oh. Malmsteen has played there. What? <laughs> like. You know, it's like a big thing. And yeah. And um and these guys are just magicians at like figuring things out logistically. Like the they got Tangerine Dream to the festival. They flew into Dibrugar and instead of getting in another set of cars and driving like we did, they just found an old Russian surplus military helicopter and flew him in on that. <laughs> like wow. it's wild, man. And those guys are like the most resourceful, just like quickest guys I've ever met and they just like they hustle and they have that zero festival and they have the the orange festival and we got to play the orange festival and the reason that we got to play it at all is the keyboard player in their band is in another band called five eight in (laughs) India and they were walking down the sidewalk and they saw a sign in front of the bar that said you know tonight five eight and the keyboard player was like we'll see about that fuck those guys they can't take our name you know so they like you know, use their passes to get in, and they saw us, and they were like, "Well, I guess we'll change the name of the band because they really liked Five Eight. My five, oh five, wow! So, <laughs> but like they gave us their cards, and we stayed in touch, and then they asked us to come play the festival, and we we did it and had a blast. It was oh so great. Gosh. India is amazing. Man, I hope that's on your autobiography somewhere, Patrick. That maybe you're already working on. I don't know. I actually have. I'm about 60% of the way through a book called about being a professional musician called a great way to make a lousy living. Oh, wow. (laughs) I am so glad that you have brought that up and thank you for sharing. I I did want to ask you like, how long have you been doing 200 dates a year? I joined five, eight, I moved to Athens to go to college in 1989 and just Mm -hmm. like just about enough time for a cup of coffee to get cold before I dropped out. Yeah. College. So, so, so <laughs> yeah. similar to your experience right? yeah um, like people were like you play drums here there's five bands here who need a drummer so i joined angle lake which was mm-hmm. a band with these two guys that moved down to seattle it was like a proto grunge thing in 1989 like nobody knew what grunge was yet but these yeah. guys came here from seattle with these two like super heavy guitar players matt hansen and john rogers and vic chestnut was the bass player in that band mm. um, and it was like a crazy horse thing. And I joined five, eight, which, you know, I've been in off and on ever since. And a band called La Brea Stompers and a band called Floodgate. And, and there was a folk duo uh, that had several different names, but it was these two folk singers, uh, Debbie Norton and Anita Blashock. And I, I toured with all of those bands and that kind of, it made it really difficult for me to get to class on time. So I dropped out of school. (laughs) Um, And then five, eight, was the most professionally successful band of those bands. A lot of things happened mm-hmm. over the year and a half after I joined all those bands to sort of like Vic had an accident 
uh, health thing, and he wasn't wasn't he he spilled boiling water on himself and had to go into physical therapy and all this stuff. Oh my goodness! You know, Vic. Uh, people don't know who Vic Chestnut is. He was an amazing singer songwriter, originally from Zebulon, Georgia. Moved to Athens. Was in a terrible car accident. Was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life, and died. I guess in two thousand and ten. Maybe I'm mm-hmm. not sure if he's been gone that long or not. But um. But right after I started playing in Angle Lake, we had one big show where we opened for Fugazi. And, wow. And then Vic was making spaghetti and just dumped an entire pot of boiling water into his wheelchair, into his lap, and had to go to the hospital. And Angle Lake kind of drifted apart after that. Um, wow. And then La Brea Stompers was the hardest band to leave because I don't think I've ever laughed as hard with a band in my life yeah. as I did on the road with those guys. It was Everything was so much fun. But five eight felt like a leaving train that I had to get on, and uh, yeah. So within, I joined five eight uh, in August of nineteen eighty nine. By nineteen ninety two, we were doing two hundred shows a year. We did two hundred shows to two hundred twenty shows a year, nineteen ninety two, ninety three, ninety four, all the way up through I think ninety six or seven, mm-hmm. and then you know tapered down to a leisurely hundred and fifty shows a year. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and yeah. and then. I left that band. Um, we had a, a deal with a, a sort of semi-major indie label mm-hmm. that went really badly, and I left the band in 2000. No, in 1990, New Year's Day of 1999, and then went back in 2007. I've been back in 5.8 longer than I was in 5.8 the first time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about you abruptly leaving in, in 99. And so it was just because of a label deal? Well, it wasn't the label deal itself. It was a lot. I mean, at that point, we had probably played 2,000 shows. Yeah. Um, or getting close, you know? Mm-hmm. And we were just burned out. We yeah. had done a bunch of that without any tour support. Just like our, you know, we started out in a, in a Chevy Tradesman van with no AC. And, yeah. you know, did a zillion shows in that. And then... We got a Dodge van with AC, and then the AC died. <laughs> we were good friends with the band, the Toadies. You know, they had an uh, incredible album called Possum Kingdom. Yeah, I, I haven't listened to the record, but I do know of the Toadies. Yeah, they're a really good band. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, we were peers at one time. We were all playing shows together, mm-hmm. uh, particularly around Dallas and Fort Worth, where they're from. And then I remember that the day... That you know, the Toadies had a big single that did really well. I remember the day that they announced that record of Gump Platinum was the day that our Dodge van turned uh, 250,000 miles over. <laughs> <And> <laughs> we were in like, you know, we were in like Iowa City or something on the yeah. road. We slugged it out on the road uh-huh. for many, many years and went through all the changes that you go through in your 20s, you know, like battling depression and different substance abuse issues and, um, relationships that you know flamed out and marriages that failed and mm-hmm. you know bands that broke down in, in in enterprise alabama and yeah and um it just you know and then that label deal was you know there were so many promises made and mm. and you know everybody got their hopes up and then the label was brand new and and very disorganized and couldn't sell any records we sold more of our own record out of the back of the van than any label ever sold for us. The cassette only releases that we did, we sold five 
thousand to one and ten thousand to the other. And mm-hmm. I don't think any of the labels we were ever signed to managed to get anything close to that. I think that if Bandcamp had been around in the nineties, we would be having a very different conversation right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, because it, go ahead. Well, it's just the only thing that kept us from getting music to fans was we would play a show in like Birmingham, Alabama. It'd be five hundred people there. You know, we'd play with uh the band that eventually became Verbena. Um Okay. And uh they were called Swallow or Shallow, I can't remember which. You know, and they had they were deeply connected in Birmingham. We've been playing at the mm-hmm. Nick forever. So we played the Bayou there with them one night and five, six hundred people there. And the next day, you know, our manager is screaming into the phone, like, why are there only three records in the record store in Birmingham? You know, one of the C's it was our base, you know. Yeah. Distribution was all, you know, it was all Fakakta and um, it was just like that everywhere. And I, you know, it, it was very, the only people who really benefited from the record industry, such as it was before it collapsed, was a minority of performers, like maybe less than 2% of performers who managed to recoup their advance and make money. Mm. And then all the middlemen, all the suits who had their hand in your pocket, you know, everyone yeah. else just kind of, you know, as I've said many times, there's a lot of buried, there's a lot of bodies buried beside the road at the intersection of art and commerce. Yeah. I mean, is everyone else in debt? Right. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, every band's in debt, right? Like you signed yeah. up day. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of, um, um, there was an essay that, uh, Steve Albini wrote about this yeah. time of, of the suicide of Kurt Cobain mm-hmm. about, you know, it's called the problem with music and mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. breaking it down like dollar for dollar, like what, like the actual band puts like $2,000 in their pocket and everyone else gets paid. And then the yeah. band has to pay that money back at the rate of 12 cents on a dollar for every record sold. So if you sell a record, you know, at wholesale for five bucks, 60 yeah. cents of that goes to repay your enormous million dollar advance, you know, yeah. over time. So I have no nostalgia about the record industry of the 90s. But I do, if, man, if we had had Bandcamp or even like CD Baby from, what, 12 years ago when that was a big thing. Like, yeah. you know, I, I would never have had to get a day job or... yeah. You know, not a very different life. So did you get a day job? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I left 5-8, I had uh-huh. been working solely. So there was a taper of, like, construction work. I was the world's yeah. worst carpenter for years. Yeah. I painted houses. Uh, I washed dishes, all those things. And uh-huh. those jobs became less and less necessary as 5-8 sort of gradually scaled up to 200 shows a year. Um but some of those years, you know, I took home, you know, $19,000 for 200 dates. And so mm-hmm. that was, uh, I wasn't living high, but I wasn't having to like, you know, go dance for the man anywhere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, as, as tour support tapered off, as that label sort of soured on our relationship because we hadn't sold any records, mm-hmm. um, I was having to sort of ease back into the working economy. And I, and I was like setting tile. Uh, I was working for a tile setter. Yeah. In like February, we were working in a house that was unfinished, so there was no heat. And I was out in the driveway running a wet saw, cutting tile. And I thought, I wonder yeah. if it's going to hurt when I cut my finger off because it's so cold that I yeah. can't feel my fingers. And, and um, 
it started to snow and I was like, man, this is so terrible. I wonder if I should go back to school. And that was when I made the decision to go finish my degree that I had started before I dropped out. And then I got into IT work. So yeah, I've had IT jobs and, yeah. and, and, um, and, you know, still done some house painting here and there to make extra cash. I mean, I've yeah. always hustled. Yeah. When did you meet your wife? So one of the sort of casualties of that, that dream dying, the 5.8, the original, like, idea that we were going to somehow claw our way out of the cover of Spin Magazine or onto yeah. MTV. You... So I think every musician starts w with this sort of over the rainbow vision and dream and yeah. gradually pairs it down to, I just don't want to have to go get a day job to right. God. I wish I had a day job, you know? Uh, yeah. yeah. But I, my, my first marriage was sort of forged in the uh, fire of ambition. Like it felt like, you know, mm. we were going to be this, I mean, Five Eight was a really successful rock band. We were we were selling out the Forty Water very closely, which at the time was an eight hundred or nine hundred cap venue. Yeah, and you know, and it, it, the joke was Five Eight is the next big thing out of Athens, and they always will be <laughs> <laughs> because we didn't really have any idea what the job of of being a band was. You know, yeah, like we didn't really understand what was incumbent upon us as yeah. performers. We had this idea that we would become famous because our art was so good as mm -hmm. opposed to becoming successful because you knew how to hustle, you know. Oh man, it's a it you gotta you gotta have both miraculously somehow. You have to wear so many hats. Yeah, these days especially because mm -hmm. not only are you playing in the band, you're also promoting the band and booking the band and working on the van and like Yeah. It's a lot more like the the late fifties, early sixties for rock and roll now than it was before, because, you know, back then every band, even like, you know, the Chitlin circuit R and B bands and jump drive bands and all the early bop combos would tour in like a station wagon yeah. with a doghouse bass strapped to the roof. And, you know, and it was like that. It was very yeah. sort of, um, you know, I got a barn, let's have a dance kind of, um, way of, uh, of doing music promotions and, and having a career. Yeah, and it's like that now, you know. Let's take yeah. a band like the Future Birds. I know you've been working with them. You know, they're mm -hmm. so self-contained. They do a lot of their own recording. I think that they do a lot of their own booking. You know, and it's all very, like, as the money kind of bled out of the industry, a lot of the people who sort of expected to get rich off of it went into real estate or, or you know, advertising or something else. Yeah. Because you know, it's the there's not that much fat on the bone anymore, so it's on kind of on bands to, yeah. to be their own kind of self-contained unit. Well, I mean, it 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 really is amazing though, and uh, especially with the living room scene and the backyard scene, which had already started. Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking to myself now, I was like, man, the most successful tour that I have done in my lifetime of touring, like as far as like just ease and financial stability uh was with with Pete when we when we rode around in my Highlander and played in living rooms and I was like oh this is this is how you can can actually do it um, yeah. you know as opposed to being like what there were 30 people here why do I have $12 to dole out <laughs> to three other people you know yeah. Yeah. and i mean you know i understand the hierarchy i understand that 
the the doorman and the and the bartender and and the person who booked the show and promoted everybody's got to make money and so you know the piece of the pie gets smaller but um but i i think we're going to see a lot more of this oh i can have my favorite band in my backyard for a price right, right. and like they I will, just yeah as you were as you were dialing my number i was talking to a guy in tampa who is an old friend of the band is like, I want you guys to play my birthday party next year. Cause his birthday was this week and wow. uh, yeah, we couldn't do it this year. So we're going to do it next year. And we were just knocking around numbers like, but also, you know, and this is something that kind of gets at the sort of fundamental relationship that an artist has with society in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, so we're going to get really meta here for a second, but get it. We treat arts as an afterthought in this country. Like, mm-hmm. all right, the band's going to play, you know, Fonzo's Knuckle Room. Uh, it's going to have have five eight on a Friday night, and every expense involved in the band's playing gets taken out of the band's pocket, just like the record label deal we were just talking about. Like, yeah, all right, so we're going to charge eight bucks at the door. We get a hundred people through the door. It's eight hundred bucks. We've got to pay the door guys. We got to pay the front of house engineer, the monitor engineer. Uh, we got to pay security. Like, you know, every slice of production cost comes out of that door. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the meantime, you know, the bar is doing a brisk business in alcohol. Uh, yeah. And, right. You know, like, but that's all, oh, that's, that's not the band's money. That just goes in the, in the bar's pocket. You know, yeah. my experience touring in Europe is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on a band tour is Europe, you pull into the club, they're glad to see you, you know, and um, you set up, you do a full sound check and then like the promoter takes you to dinner and and then you play and then the promoter has money. And sometimes that money come from the came from, comes from the door. Sometimes it comes from a fund that he set up to sort of build a relationship between you and the places that he promotes. Sometimes there's a grant from the city yeah. or the, or, the or, you know, whatever the equivalent of a state is. Yeah, you know the province or whatever, and um, you get paid touring in Europe because we don't consider, like in the United States, we don't consider the arts an essential part of life. But it's interesting that as as the economy cratered here in COVID, what did everybody do? They started watching Netflix. They started downloading music. Like they they dug deep into the reservoir of art that has been produced to keep like their sanity and keep their lives. Yeah. Together. But yeah. Like, and we're still treating art. Like it's not important. Like art is the, is the, it's for so many reasons it's important to the well being of a society, mm-hmm. but you know, it's just not, especially in the South. Like yeah. I love the South. I've lived here my whole life, except for a very brief period of time where I tried to live in Chicago and failed miserably at it. Um, there's some things we get wrong down here. Really mm-hmm. wrong in addition to all the things that we're talking about getting wrong right now with, yeah. you know, the movement for racial justice and, um, and a lot of the reevaluating of the relationship that workers have in a, in a capital economy. But yeah, in addition to all that, like we get some things about, about the role of men in society kind of skewed and, and about the role of art and how to raise kids and what role oh, religion totally. should play. Like, yeah. Yeah. Emotional competence for a lot of men in the South. I mean, I would men in general, but men in the South is, is uh, usually 
negative. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd love for the, us to to get in a room and have each of us write. What do you? Two questions. What do you think a man's role is in a in in, in a family? Yeah. And then also, what are the acceptable emotions for a man to display? Like, uh, that's going to be a short list. Yeah. But yeah. like, I think a Southern man, you've got two basic things you're allowed to, uh, your roles, protection and providence. So you got to mm-hmm. be tough. You got to be prepared for violence. Um, you got to be ready to go to work every day um, and make a living because that is your role. Southern mm-hmm. man, protection and providence. And also the emotions you're allowed to display. Anger and stoicism. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I know yeah. tons of guys I grew up with whose fathers have never told them that they were proud of them or that they love them. You know, like mm. I was lucky. My dad was pretty demonstrative for, yeah. as, you know, for a boomer dad. Yeah. But man, I shower my kid with affirmation and praise and love because I don't want her to feel like she has to go outside of the family to find it. Cause I know what kind of teenage boy I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, Good for you. And I'm glad that um I'm glad that you're giving her that example and I'm glad that your your father showed you that same thing. I mean, you he's a he was a military guy, correct? Yeah. Dad's a retired Air Force colonel. Yeah. Also yeah. did a number of years after he retired from the Air Force, he went and worked at the Marine Corps War College in Quantico. So he's in that culture, you know, uh-huh. of uh steely-eyed, you know, rock-jawed. Totally. Um, Manly men, but he, he did the work, man. Like he watched me spiral into a pretty, pretty chaotic and, and, and all consuming life of, uh, of addiction and uh, mm-hmm. alcoholism and was like, what role can I play in, in, in sort of reeling this kid in and helping him get his shit together and he did the work to his credit, man, just an incredible job of turning that around. And we've been super close ever since. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, that's part of why I do a podcast, too, though. Like, I feel like there's a lot of Gen X musicians, and I'm sure millennials, I'm much yeah. closer to my sort of peer group of Gen X guys who, you know, had to deal with a lot of rejection from families. Yeah. Uh, by, by you know, uh, have you ever seen that Onion article? Um, guy wasting, fully wasting white privilege working at Best Buy. <laughs> <laughs> Like, no, I haven't. <laughs> but like, but you, man. Know, you have all these advantages in life as a white Southern Protestant man. Like mm-hmm. you're basically, you know, you can have your pick of ski do uh, dealerships or, you know, used car lots or whatever. If you just know how to hustle or go yeah. to law school or whatever. But instead, like you choose this incredibly marginal profession of playing drums in a rock band. Like really? Mm-hmm. Um or being a singer songwriter or whatever. And a lot of times, man, that drives a wedge in families that uh, a lot of, you know, sometimes the recovery like never happens. And then if you're, if you're, if you're having this antagonistic relationship with your family of origin about your career decisions and you're getting depressed about it because it's fucking hard. Yeah. You can't go to your old man and be like, man, I don't know. I just feel really, I'm a lot of fear about, not having any money, he'll be like, "Well, you could have gone to grad school." Like you know, that conversation mm-hmm. is a non-starter. And, oh uh, yeah. So yeah. I was uh, part of the whole reason the crash and ride exists was this idea that we could have these conversations and talk about 
the life of a professional musician is not an eight hour a day job. Yeah. But also that being successful as a musician isn't the sort of panacea that I think people expect it to be. You can become materially blessed. You can have a lot of money and you can have a lot of prestige, but that's not a magic wand. You know, it doesn't mm -hmm. fix anything. If you're having depression, anxiety, addiction or trauma issues, like mm -hmm. those don't just go away because you could afford therapy, you know, but yeah. a lot of times the pressure is so high uh, at that level. You know, if you're on a bus tour, you're playing to 10 or 15,000 people like, you know, I, I've talked to drummers who've had those gigs regularly and they're on a click and they're on charts and, mm -hmm. you know, especially if there's like dance moves involved, like if they're touring with someone like say, for example, Miley Cyrus or something, you know, yeah. um, there is no opportunity for deviation because yeah. you will add a beat where dancers like have a one and you'll be on three and it'll be a disaster. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you're out. <laughs> oh Yeah. Yeah. I've been fired from gigs. You ever been fired? You know, I don't think anybody's asked me that question. Um, no, I haven't been fired. Most it's, of the times I just quit. I take professional rejection every bit as hard as I ever took romantic rejection, you know? Yeah. But you can't, like, you know, you you can't. If you get kicked out of a band, you can't show up at the end of the driveway like John Cusack and save anything with a boombox. Yeah. You know, yeah. like people be like, "That dude's a psychopath." Like you should, you know. Glad we got rid of him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you gotta like suck it up, not complain. You know, it's really mm -hmm. bad form to get fired from a, a gig and then walk around and talk shit because oh, God. It, it just yeah. looks so bad on you. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, and you have to, it, and it may not. It may not even come down to a personal thing. They may just be like, oh, well, you know, he's just not the right feel. He's just not the right, he's just not the right drummer for the job. I mean. Yeah. Um, right. But there's yeah. all kinds of other pressures too. Like, yeah, you know, I have a buddy uh, who was on a long-term tour and, you know, in the meantime, his home life blew up. Yeah. And uh, he went through a funk, kind of like got a little just depressed and his way of dealing with that is to kind of isolate be quiet just yeah. kind of stare at his phone in the van and and the the band he was out with was like man this guy's not any fun anymore and he didn't get asked by the next tour like they went with somebody else oh uh, well so talk about like a one-two punch man you get a little mm. down and then you get fired from your gig like talk about kicking a man while he's down you know and so yeah. That happened in the months running up to me being deciding to start Crash and Ride. It was like I was like, this guy has nobody to talk to in the town that he lives in about this because it's an industry town and it's going to get around that he had this yeah. situation. So I figured that a chorus of voices of other people who've had similar experiences could at least like help us understand that we're not the lone ranger in this. Like everyone, oh, wow, everyone has struggled. And I don't believe in advice. Like, I just think yeah. that giving people advice is just a way that people try to control your behavior or mm. they're talking to their past or future selves. Like, they're not really talking to you about what's best for you. Mm -hmm. I feel like in, instead of advice, we should share our own experiences, what gave us strength and what gave us hope. That, to me, is more powerful than any advice. So, hence, here we are, Crash and Ride, where episode 73 is going to come out tonight.
How has your relationship with Crash and Rod changed since the pandemic began? Well, the first thing that happened, I did like two episodes after quarantine started and then just fell into a funk and didn't yeah. do it. The sort of structure of Crash and Ride up until episode like 58 or 9 was that I could sit on my side of the table because I was doing all the interviews live at that point. It was only a couple of phoners, you know. Yeah. I could sit on my side of the table and be like, I'm in a good place. Uh, you know, I'm a good place in my sobriety. I'm a good place with my emotional recovery. I'm a very strong place. So I could sort of be there for people to really open a vein and go deep. Yeah, you know? yeah. And still be strong and, and not like react in any way that they felt judged or looked down on because I'd been there. But suddenly in the like third week of quarantine, I was right back there in the funk, like not doing good, having a lot of anxiety, you know, mm. it just didn't feel like I had the emotional bandwidth to, to hold these people in a safe place while they kind of opened up, you know? Yeah. I guess it was probably six weeks later. I got a phone call from um, a listener in Chicago, but a guy named Nick, and he was like, "Hey, bro, <laughs> you're not going to make me go through this whole quarantine pandemic thing without any more crashing rides, right? Because I I need this right now." Wow. And I was like, ah, you know, I gotta find I, I've got to find a different approach. Like, I can't. I, I didn't feel when I first started back, I wasn't on the most solid ground, you know, yeah. like I was still feeling a little shaky about like, what's going to happen? Are we going to lose our house? Like, you mm -hmm. know, and then we got some, uh, you know, as a musician out of work, I qualified for pandemic unemployment assistance and that helped. And my wife, she's a college professor, so she still makes money. So like our economic situation stabilized and I got real serious about the garden and, um, Oh, I know we talked about those raccoons. Yeah. It's fucking trying raccoons. to wreak havoc. Oh, they didn't try to wreak havoc. They wiped out my corn crop, but I wiped out a couple of them too. So we're even, um, <laughs> the BB gun. No, no. With uh, my grandpa's, uh, 22 bolt. Out. Uh, oh, you yeah. wiped them out. I sent them to, I sent them to their raccoon God. Um, Oh but, man. <laughs> But anyway, um, yeah, and, you know, I started doing interviews again and found, like, you know, I don't have to do it from this place of, like, you know, up on this fucking pedestal. Like, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, the format of the interview changed just slightly. Like, I don't feel like an MC anymore. Like, I'm not a master of ceremonies. I'm, 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 it's more of a, like, conversation now. Like, how are you doing? I'm, I'm hanging in there. How are you doing? Like... You know, I talked to yeah. Hannah Aldridge a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. She's one of my favorite singer-songwriters. She's from Muscle Shoals. Grew up there, you know, the 400 units on her record. And um, she was the hardest working musician, I think, I know currently, personally, was slugging out, you know, 200 shows a year, but mostly in Europe. And, you know, all the shows in Europe canceled all at once, and she got on a plane and came home and... It was just like dominoes falling, like one yeah. gig after another, until she was just sitting in an apartment, uh, sitting in her apartment in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Like, holy shit, what now? Yeah. Oh, and uh, so she went back to school. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this East Tennessee State, I think it's called. It's right there in Murfreesboro. I, I'm totally wrong about that. Oh, um, uh, Middle Tennessee. Yeah, that's it, Middle Tennessee. Yeah. 
Yeah. So she, I think she's got a literature degree that she finished. And then um, she got greenlighted to fly back into Sweden. So she's, yeah. she's, she's gigging again. Yeah, that's right. Um, we, we'd spoken briefly about it and I listened to uh, some of her episode. She's the best, man. Yeah. She's, like, she's such like, I will always uh, have a warm spot in my heart for like a brassy dame, you know, to use a, a dated term, but just yeah. like, you know, any, any, um, especially Southern woman with an, just a, an attitude and, uh, a, you know, trigger happy middle finger. I'll always, I'll always have time for women like, like yeah, you know, she's just sharp. And, uh, yeah. Cool. And she did a great interview from somebody who is currently recording his first episode to someone who is about to release their 73rd. What were the differences that you saw over the course of those episodes? How did you, did you become a better conversationalist? Did you become, I don't know, just tell me about that. You know, I I have seesawed consistently between having like a full page of notes going into an interview to just having like the name of the person I'm going to interview and some key dates in front of me. But I always have a notepad in front of me. Yeah. You know, I interviewed Lily Hyatt a couple of weeks ago. Her mm-hmm. episode is uh, just out last week, and yeah. she's really private. Her social media presence is real strong, but like yeah. different people will come on to your show with a different level of emotional availability. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, it was kind of hers was definitely like a just the facts, ma'am, kind of interview. And um, I think it really did the job it needed to do. Uh, she, she, she's very honest. She's just shy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I respect that. And, uh, but then you'll have someone who comes on like me, who's just like, you know, had three espressos and is ready to talk your ear off. Oh man. I have a whole page of notes, Patrick. And we had, we, I I think I got two questions launched. So, (laughs) but you know what? But, but honestly, honestly, that's great because I had been, I was nervous. I kind of, uh, I mean, I don't know why, because I mean, clearly we were always able to have great conversations, even though we've never even actually met in person, but this is about the fourth. That's right. We haven't. That's crazy. I know, yeah. but it's like the fourth or fifth, I would say, like long-term conversation that we've had, um, podcast included. But I mean, you know, but I was sitting here, I was just thinking about, oh, I'm doing this. I'm doing this podcast thing, and it's brand new to me. Fucking mm-hmm. first time, you know? Every time I dial, with like the Skype music plays, I'm dialing, do, 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 and I think, oh, God, please let this go, okay? Uh, you know? <laughs> um, I'm so glad to hear yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean... It's like you're hosting this weird little dinner party. It's like my dinner with Andre, you know, like it's, uh, um, you don't want to be a bad host. Oh man. That is really funny that you said that because I had this experience today where I have just now kind of gotten into the groove of my apartment. You know, I have artwork up, I have everything kind of has a space. I'm like, all right, I'm really starting to feel this. Um, and I have some friends who have invited me over a number of times and I go, look, how about I host y'all for dinner? How about you come over and I'll cook you dinner. You can just bring some, bring a bottle of wine or something and we'll listen to records, have a great time. And, you know, and then of course I was like, well, okay, Spencer, to host dinner for more than yourself, you need to have at least three to four plates. So, right. yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so of course, like, and I was already, I'm like, okay, well, let's get some plates, you know, and I go to Bed Bath & Beyond and then I'm like, well, you know, like I just have the shower liner, like, would it look nicer if I had a curtain? You know I mean? Like in all the... <laughs> all this stuff mm-hmm. i'm like i'm like you're yeah, not yeah. you're not about to spend 120 dollars at bed bath beyond so you can impress your friends spencer just make them dinner <laughs> like they understand that <laughs> the whole thing is a work in progress and that's kind of the way that i've had to come back and look at this podcast and go like i'm sitting here working on my first episode listening to people who have done hundreds of episodes and trying to make this comparison, and I'm just like, this is this is false, and this is not good, and I'm going to be hurt by this expectation, when yes. really I should just do the interviews and and figure it out. <laughs> two things, two things I want to say to that. One is never never expend a bunch of emotional energy comparing your worst inside feelings to someone's best outside representation of their like. If you're comparing mm. your worst inside to someone else's best outside, you're always going to come up. You know, comparison will be the thief of joy every time that happens. Because you listen to my podcast, I have done two hours of editing for every 45 minutes of actual audio that you hear. You know, I've taken out like, you know, breath sounds and I've taken out like the dumb thing I said. You know, like, yeah, it's a constant. I'm, I'm trying to present this facade that's you know it's not necessarily a slice of real life but the second thing i want to say about that which harkens back to our earlier conversation about europeans and their relationship to art versus americans Mm -hmm. if you went to the apartment of a singer songwriter with one exceptionally strong lp under his belt like yours i don't think that you would expect to see a shower liner (laughs) in europe because there's an there's an expectation that you're a starving artist, you're a struggling artist, and you're going to live a certain life. Mm -hmm. There was a guy named Vincent Moon, and he had a thing called Concert Importe, which just means like takeout film, takeout concert, like a takeaway Mm -hmm. concert. Um, And he would do videos in different places in Paris of bands that were coming through, like The X or um, like uh, early... um, um, what was the Father John Misty's band before he left that band? Um, Fleet Foxes. Yeah, Fleet Foxes or someone like that would come through Paris and they would meet up with Vincent Moon and he would take them to a location that he had scouted and they would set up and play acoustic. Yeah. Street, right? I and loved those. Oh, they're so good. So I did one with a band called the Lolos, an Americana band that was based out of here, then Austin, then Portland, now back to Austin, I think. Um I went on tour with them because their drummer had a visa issue or something at work. Um, Amazing drummer named Jeremy Wheatley. Absolutely brilliant guy. Mm -hmm. Beautiful man. Great player, but he he couldn't go on this European tour. So we did a a takeaway film with uh, Vincent Moon. He didn't even own his own camera. The thing we shot was shot with a borrowed camera, and the battery died after the like midway through the second song and he was like heartbroken and we went back to the club where another band on our label was playing because we didn't have a show in Paris that night. We were just there to do the Vincent Moon thing. Yeah. And um, he went rooting around in the bag and found another battery and we were able to go out and finish the shoot, which was a miracle. But years later, not even that maybe a year and a half later, I was doing some work for REM. I used to do IT work for them as a contractor. Oh, wow. And I got to show a member of the band the takeaway films. I was like, you you got to see, because, you know, when you're doing IT stuff, sometimes you're just running updates and you're just sitting there with your arms crossed. 
the member of REM that was that saw it was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Do you think he'd be interested in working with REM? And I said, I don't know. And, and they were like, could you contact him on our behalf and see? And I was like, absolutely. So I, I hunt down Vincent's phone number and I call him. He doesn't even have a cell phone. He doesn't have a phone in his apartment. Like he's living in a room in like a group house somewhere in the like rough section of Paris. Yeah. And someone else gets the phone and they don't really speak very good English. And my French is abysmal. But we managed to like, I'd like to speak to Vincent. Oh, he's not here. But you can call tomorrow. What time, you know, and, and we work it out. Like I'm going to call tomorrow at three o'clock your time. Mm-hmm. So I call the next day. And I'm like. Hey, Vincent, it's Patrick from the Lolos. Oh, Patrick, how are you? I'm like, I'm great, man. It's great to hear your voice. And we make small talk for a minute. And I'm like, hey, Vincent, do you like the band R.E.M.? He's like, oh, I like this band very much. They're very good. And I'm like, okay. I showed them your stuff. And they want to work with you. There's this long pause on the phone. And then Vincent says, Patrick, if this is a joke, it is not funny. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm dead serious. They want to work with you. So this guy doesn't own a camera at this point. Maybe he owns like a cheap camera. But he borrows a camera every time he wants to shoot. He's living on a couch in like a group house. Doesn't have two nickels to rub together. Like that. And, the, and he's made this, you know, Le Concert Importe are like huge. Like every band wants to do one in the indie rock world in like 2006. You know? Yeah. But like, yeah. So, you know. It's a, like we, I think because in America we live over this precipice all the mm-hmm. time of like I could get tonsillitis and fucking die, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because because we don't have a safety net here. Like, but there there's an expectation that if you're doing if you're writing a novel or if you're writing plays or if you're playing music, if you're trying to become you know the greatest post-war uh, jazz saxophone player in Paris, like there's this expectation you're going to live in a in a room you know, with a cold water sink and a bathroom down the hall. And that's okay. Like, it's not a, there's not a judgment there. Like, yeah. you know, if you tell your parents, oh yeah, I'm living in a group house with seven other people. And I have like, you know, a room the size of a phone booth and uh, yeah. on beans and rice, they're going to be like, God, Spencer, what happens if you get strep throat? You know, like what happens if you get a, like a, a lump in your armpit that turns out to be cancer. Like, how are you going to not be bankrupt for the rest of your life? Well, yeah. I don't have those concerns in Europe. You don't have to sort of maintain this front of bourgeois respectability. Yeah. You can just be an artist. You know? mm. Wow. That's amazing to hear and really great perspective to offer. Um, I mean, I still wouldn't encourage anybody to not have health insurance, you know? Yeah. Oh, I mean, like, look, I'll a, tell you what. Yeah, it's been very helpful for me, and I, I slid in for the uh, for the affordable care, um, yeah. and yeah. hopefully it won't be taken away. <laughs> well, man, I don't, I don't. I mean, I don't want to start a stampede or anything, but um, I can tell you is the reason that I'm working on my French so hard right now, and I'm sort of looking that general direction is there's a town about two hours and ten minutes by train south of Paris called La Charité sur Loire. And there's a musician there named Mark Mulholland who has a label called Cannery Row Records. And he has got this idea that, like, they're going to turn La Charité, this little town, into Muscle Shoals on the Loire River. Like, he's got musicians coming from all over the world to move there right now because it's cheap. Like, you know, Western Europe is weird. Like, all these little towns, like La Charité in 1948 had, like, almost 10,000 people. And now it's only 5,000. 
Um, wow. it's, it's still got a hospital and it's still got, you know, infrastructure, you know, this like some restaurants and some schools and stuff, but it's a really tiny place and it's dying because everyone's moving out of these small towns into big cities where all the opportunity is, you know, mm-hmm. it's happening in people moving to Barcelona, Madrid, Lyon, Marseille, Paris, like out of these tiny towns. And so this guy has got a relationship with the mayor of, uh, of La Charité and they're like, let's just fill this town up with musicians. And they've got a committee that helps expedite visa stuff. And like, you know, depending on how things go in the next few weeks, like, you know, I don't want to make this a partisan political thing, but I think it's pretty clear, like what my expectations from a government that I pay taxes to are. And like their responsibility to me doesn't end with them putting my money in the bank. You know? Yeah. So yeah. I'm sort of thinking like if things get really dark here, like I may just pop over to La Charité and, and, be a session drummer and like the you know and if people in paris are like two hours why would you live there it's like living in antarctica but you know it can take two hours to get from here to the atlanta airport you know yeah yeah so. uh yeah honestly that's that's nothing especially for uh somebody for as as well yeah especially somebody as as a uh, road worn as you two hours is <laughs> is like a trip to the convenience store you know and if you get a chance to listen to the dave paho interview i did he talks about touring in italy like they did two weeks in italy so the drives yeah. were all like 20 minutes and <laughs> there would be all this preparation like oh you know uh, David, the van leaves tomorrow at the 10 o'clock in the morning. And he'd be like, okay, how long we got to go? Uh, we'll be there by 11. <laughs> oh, tough day. You know, uh, oh. they'd, they'd still stop three times to get an espresso. You know? <laughs> oh my goodness. That I is amazing. Like that, man. That's well, you know, oh, that sounds beautiful. Well, uh, you can... You know, if uh, if you happen to get over there and you uh, and you test the temperature, <laughs> give your pal Spencer a shout. Let me know how the water is. <laughs> oh man, count on it. They're so hungry for Americana there right now. You know, yeah. and like there's so many. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Like, there's an NPR show that's like the uh, the World Americana show on NPR, and it's all mm. Scottish Americana, Australian Americana. And uh, it's you know it, it it's not bad, but it lacks a certain authenticity that you know someone who like you grew up in Oxford, Mississippi is gonna, I mean uh, Jackson, Mississippi is gonna bring to the table, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I think that you know, La Charité may fill up with people that I know like a lot. You know, the only reason that a lot of people wouldn't move there is the visa thing, and they're just like, don't worry about that. Like that we the French government wants artists. So, wow. Speak any French? Uh, no, but I can, I can certainly try. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that like the fastest way to learn a language is just to immerse yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have, I've tried, I've taken Spanish classes in in high school and college and, mm-hmm. and done, uh, you know, and I think this was something that we talked about, um, on, uh, my crash and ride episode was, uh, just the best way to learn is really just immerse yourself in it, whatever it is. If yeah, you, man. you know, I'm like, uh, like, oh, well, okay. Um, you're going to learn this whole catalog for this band and go on the road with them in two weeks. Are you ready? And you're like, well, no, I'm not, but let's get started. Yeah, but I will be. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you're like, well, do you know French? I'm like, well, not really. Okay. Well, 
let's go to France and you'll, yeah. you'll figure it out. Right. If, if I get to <laughs> yeah. the point where I, if I don't learn French, I'll starve. I bet I'll learn how to speak a little French. You know? Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. But also I mean, just landing in Toronto, you know, mm-hmm. on tour between the gate and the rental car, I learned, you know, 25 French words because, uh, everything up and that's not even French. Canada. That's, you know, English Canada, but every, all the signs are, are, are in two languages and I learned no, right. I've watched sure. That means, you know, that's car, you know, security, like, Oh, that's the security checkpoint. Like just having it in front of you, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. I learned, I mean, I, I took a couple of years of Spanish too, uh, and then moved to Chicago for a while and learned that, you know, mid IC meant watch here. Cause there was a sports bar with all the soccer screens on, you know, and it was like, El football, mira aquí, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, see, I've got my French and Spanish now going in my head. Yeah. Well, mira aquí, yeah. Yeah, that's... mira aquí, watch here. Yeah, I know yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's yeah. the like that's the like second person command, you know, tense of of uh, I can't remember what the the I don't know my pluperfect from my imperfect, but you know the imperative. That's it. The imperative, mira. Watch or look. Patrick, I, I wanted to uh, follow suit. Um, I, I really like how you end all of your podcasts with uh, three questions or, or 10 questions, however yeah, many yeah. you do. I decided to, I tried to compress it down to three. Um, I'm having a hard time. So this is, this is a trial run, but we're going to see what happens. But what is the biggest unsung difficulty in your industry that people outside might not think about? So here's the thing that I tell people to do. I tell people to make wishes because they end up being more powerful than prayers in some ways. You mm. know? Like if you look over at a clock and it says eleven eleven, make a wish. Yeah. If you see a shooting star, make a wish. You mm. know? Um because we have an inherent desire as sensitive people like you don't learn to play music because you're thick-headed you know most of us don't um i mean an argument could be made for pop country but anyway um but there is a desire to make other people happy and to me the great unsung difficulty is figuring out what it is that you really want like what what is what music does spencer really want to play or versus what music do you think you can make a living playing or what music do you think that, you know, the people in your life that you love most want most from you. Right. Like there's all these other expectations that you feel an intuitive desire to meet. But if you see a shooting star, make that fucking wish because in that moment when you're forced in a split second to voice your heart's desire, you'll learn about yourself. Yeah. But also, having goals helps you make all the thousand tiny decisions between here and there. It's like uh, it's like navigation, right? If you've got yeah. a map yeah. and you're a, you're in a ship and you're trying to decide how to get from Dover to Calais in the English Channel, mm-hmm. you know from the minute that you set out from Dover which way to point the boat because you know you're going to Calais. But if you don't know where you're going, it's impossible to plot your path. So for me, like the hardest thing is making concrete goals 
that will make me happy when I don't even know on many days what it is that I want, you know, for lunch, much less like, do I want to play in a power pop slash punk band? Do I want to play in a Japanese punk band? Do I want to play in an R&B group? Like, mm-hmm. but like, you know, if I glance over the clock and I see 11, 11, I'm forced like bam, in that second, like voice your desire. And because you're not getting that internal like sensor in the way, like yeah, you're not thinking about what your mom wanted. Uh, my mom's passed, but she was it was very difficult. Her set of expectations was nearly impossible for me to meet in life. I spent a lot of time trying to shape a career that wouldn't like offend her sensibilities as a former opera singer, you know. Mm-hmm. But then, like, if I have to make a wish, it helps me figure out what my inchoate, like, deep down desire is. So. The hardest unspoken goal is knowing really what your direction and what your desire is because only the most sociopathic of us makes those decisions in a vacuum of other people's needs. Oh, yeah. But the solution is to constantly make wishes so that you're talking to yourself about what it is that you actually want. Oh. Patrick, that's beautiful. Well, thanks, man. That is, yeah, that, no, that, that's really, um, that's very cathartic for me. I mean, you're yeah. a kind guy. You're a kind yeah. man. And so there was a point where you were in a band before you became a solo performer, right? Yeah. And at some point you had to make a decision. I'm going to quit this band. I'm going to write my own songs. I'm going to play my own songs. I'm going to make my own record. And I know from our conversation when you were on my podcast, that, that wasn't an easy decision to make. Because those yeah. other guys, you love them, and you want mm-hmm. them to be successful too. You know. Yeah. It it was almost like that was, it was just one after the other. It was like I made the record, and then and then knew that that I needed to part from being just like strictly full time in in one band, and other opportunities came up from that, and it and it fed, you know, it it fed what I wanted, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, from then on, I felt much more comfortable with with what I expected out of myself, and yeah. and now and now I look and go like, I can do that, you know. I just There's a thing that they always tell you the Zen master said like jump and the net will appear, you know. Oh yeah. But I always yeah. think, well, sure, everyone for whom the net appeared, we we hear the like after action report. Yeah, <laughs> right. Everybody just like went <laughs> splat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they don't want they to don't talk about it, or they can't. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, actually, an interesting point that you brought there. Um, this next one is: tell me about a mantra that you've kept close in your life. Where did you learn it, and how does it personally apply? Oh man, there were a lot of things that went really wrong in my life as I sort of crossed that. You cross over out of your teenage years and 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 believing that you're special because your family told you were special until you kind of get out in the real world and you realize, oh man, I'm just like if you're one in a million in China, there's a thousand guys just like you. Yeah. you know? Like, and it's a it's a it's a hard set of lessons to learn, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I had to stop believing everything happens for a reason. People would always tell you that everything happens for a reason. And then like, and the, and the, in the sort of 
the implied message in that is, all right, you've got to find motivation from this setback to move forward. Um, mm. But then, like, you know, right about the time I was sort of coming to grips with everything happens for a reason, the Rwandan massacres occurred. And I was like, all those people that died in that church that were massacred, that didn't happen for a reason in their lives. Yeah. You know? And so that, that, <laughs> that mantra died on the vine. And uh, so I started looking around to try to figure out how to solve some of the problems in my life, some of the shortcomings in my character. And man, the big one that I realized was that um, anger is fear turned inside out. And mm. I could start unpacking the things that made me angry because I had a lot of anger. You know, every punk rock drummer is, you know, um, they're about 70% anger and uh, 20% um, insecurity complex and about yeah. you know, 10% body odor. And uh, that was pretty much me. And um, it took me a long time to figure out, like, where all the anger was coming from and what what was inspiring it. And it had a lot to do with unmet emotional needs and fear of, of isolation. And, mm -hmm. um, so then you can kind of start like clipping wires on that bomb, you know, like you can kind of figure out like, how can I circumvent my anger response and become more patient with myself and compassionate with the other members of my band or uh, people I'm dating or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, anger is fear turned inside out is something that it stays with me a lot. And, you know, I spend a lot of time angry these days because I'm really afraid of the direction of the country. And I'm afraid that, you know, all the venues are going to close if we don't start playing live shows again before April or May yeah. of next year. How am I going to make a living, you know? Yeah. And I get angry because I have friends who are on tour in Western Europe right now. I have friends playing shows in New Zealand right now because life's just normal there. Like, you know, there was like 24 cases of COVID-19 in the entirety of Victoria, you know, the western part of Australia uh, wow. this week, you know. Yeah, we could potentially see a massive shift. Many talented musicians will probably be looking elsewhere. Um, how's anybody supposed to make a living if we if we can't play in, in right. venues and they're and they're all shutting down in some sorts, but yeah, and and uh, we're not taking steps to like mm -hmm. fix it here, and that's what's mm -hmm. crazy. Like I know we're just watching it go. Right there's yeah. a there's an anti mask movement in Germany, but it's like a fraction of the population, like a tiny little minority of the population, and most people are like, we got to stamp this disease out, you know. So yeah. same in France, same in uh, the UK is all messed up because of Brexit, but. Mm -hmm. But I have this theory about the role art plays in a society. And like f for me, the whole power of art is this empathic experience. Like I see you play a song about having your heart broken. And in my mind, there are these things called mirror neurons where I can have an emotional experience based on observing you have an emotional experience. And so you write this gorgeous song full of self-doubt about the loss of a relationship. And in my mind, I'm connecting with it. And we have an empathic connection through this time-based art form of music. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
that's the great thing about good film and good art and good music is that it's not all black and white. It's, you know, it allows for there to be some emotional ambiguity to exist. And we see these things in very real terms. And it's like doing, it's like your emotional life is, 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 you know, going to the gym and working out, you know, like you become more compassionate and that you start to see some of yourself and other people and you become more empathic and that you understand other people's suffering and you're not going to slam the door on someone who walked a thousand miles to get their kid out of Guatemala, you know, at the border. Um, but that's a real risk for a society based on violence and nihilism. Yeah. Right? Like the value of art in that society just crashes, flatlines because yeah. It's seen as a risk, right? So mm-hmm. whenever you hear these like politicians, like we got to defund the National Endowment for the Arts, like you know we got to get arts out of schools and replace it with STEM or like more patriotic history lessons or whatever, like yeah. what they're doing is they're on an, I don't know if they do it consciously. I think it's more of a like an, an innate elemental distrust of anything that fosters empathy. So like if you're if you're someone who wants to control people based on fear and you start to see solidarity developing between millennial white kids and millennial black lives matter activists, like that's going to feel like a threat to your power, you know? Oh yeah. So, well, I've uh, made my donation and I've done what I could to support a, uh, support Neva, the save our stages, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in hopes that the, this is in some way, um, a rebellion to the, to really just the indifference of, of these historic venues just falling. Yeah, man, it's crazy. Um, like, yeah. I, I've, I've, I've like, I saw on Instagram, there was like this Barley street tavern in Omaha, Nebraska. And, uh, you know, and they just said, and on their Instagram, it was like, RIP, like tonight was our last night. We closed the doors and they've been a live music venue for, for years and years. And it was just a cool little spot. You know, I mean, it was just, it was just, just the right place to go to when you were on, when you were on tour and nobody really knew who you were. It was a great access point. And, um, fuck man. I mean, that's, that was just one that I followed. You know, who, who else is going down? I mean, all these, all these venues that have been there forever, like Gabe's in Iowa city and club Babyhead in Providence. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, cat's cradle and chapel Hill that have been there for 30 years. And I don't know how they're keeping the doors open. Like, I don't know how they're surviving this or paying rent on their property unless they own the building. Like the 40 Watts owners own the building that they're in. Yeah. So I think they can sit indefinitely um, Mm -hmm. as long as the other tenants are able to pay rent. But like, that's not the case in most situations. So Patrick, my last question for you is actually a, a, uh, a one for you personally. Okay. Do they still call you Tigger? So a very tiny fraction of people who live in Athens who lived here when I got here still call me that. And it doesn't bother me to, to be called that, but like, that was like a childhood nickname. I have a I have an identical twin brother. Did you know that? No. Yeah, I have a twin brother named David who lives here. We're five minutes apart. 
We look yeah. exactly alike. At some point, you'll be in Kroger over near his house, and you'll wave at him, and he'll give you a scowl, like, who the fuck are you? Um, but we were often mistaken for each other, and um, he moved here before I did because I was such a fuck-up and couldn't get my paperwork in time to get into UGA. And um, he told everybody, oh, it's my brother. His name's Tigger, because that had been my nickname from the time I was like 12 or 13 until... Yeah forever and so by the time I got here everyone knew what I looked like because I looked like him and everyone knew my name because he told everybody my name was Tigger so I got here and everyone was like oh you must be Tigger and I was like yeah okay I guess I'm Tigger um, <laughs> and that stayed that way for most of the first time that I was in 5'8 you know um, and I just, there's no point in fighting it I would just introduce myself as Tigger because it was this done deal but then I moved mm-hmm. away to Chicago to court my wife. She was an actress up there working in Chicago. Gotcha. And, um, I got an apartment not too far from hers and, you know, did the Southern musician thing, started making food for her and reading her Spanish poetry. Um, and it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then I moved back to Athens uh, like a year and a half later. And you know, Athens cycles because it's a college town. People come and go. And I started introducing myself as Patrick. And so from there out, and then a lot of people were like, do you want to be Patrick or Tigger? I was like, I kind of prefer Patrick. But there's still a few people who just, you know, will never know me as anything else. And it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Nicknames, they they die hard. They truly die hard. And I, I, I think that's, it's why people move away and move around. You know, one of the many reasons so we can reinvent ourselves. Um, Did you have a um, nickname in Jackson? <laughs> when, when me and uh, when Zach and Dylan Lovett and I, you know, when we were young, and I think this was really before we even started Young Valley, um, uh, we we had this little joke where like Zach. Zach got deemed uh, stinky in high school because... Oh, no. Yeah, well, because he fell asleep in class and farted, and some girl called him stinky, and it stuck, you know? But then he just, like, made a joke about it and then called Dylan. Instead of calling him Dylan, he called him Dinky. And then it, and then it ended up being a whole <laughs> thing where it was like everybody had an inky name, and then he was like... And then Zach said, Spinky, Spinky Tommy. And then, and then that just... It just spurred into that, and then it just never stopped. Yeah, you know, I mean, somebody hears Spinky, and it's like that's it. That's and they they will just call me that, and I don't even I don't think anything of it anymore. I mean, I will never introduce myself as that. Right, <laughs> but right. but it was just it was just something that followed me, and um, so even my parents started doing it. I'm like, y'all, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I yeah. I don't. I don't mind it so much. It's endearing. I mean, Athens is really unusual. And I know you know this coming from Jackson and that like most towns don't have a like seven tier deep music scene where you've got four generations of rock bands that have done well, you know, starting with the B-52s and then Pylon and then R.E.M. and then Orange Twin 
and that whole scene. And then, you know, danger mouse and, and reptar and like, there's just generations of rockers here, you know, and someone like Patterson hood can sit you down and go, all right, if you go to make a record of muscle shoals, don't drink the coffee at fame studios. Like, you know, the, that kind of advice, you know, if you were a welder in Chicago and you joined the welders union at some point, they're going to be like, all right, look, don't, don't, don't mix, you know, your oxyacetylene uh, with magnesium where you're going to have a problem like that, that kind of lived experience gets handed from generations of workers down. And in Athens, we have this thing where like, you know, when I was when five, eight first started to play, it was like, you know, the, the don't, don't buy this kind of, don't buy an Econoline line because they have a high center of gravity. If the tire blows out, it'll roll. Mm-hmm. And that happened to the band Four Squirrels from Gainesville, and two members were killed. Oh my you god! Know, we never got an Econoline line because we've been told not to by another band that had been touring longer than we had. They were like, "Build a cage in your van so if there's a head-on collision, all your equipment doesn't come flying forward and crush you." So we went to this guy Matt Zabornik, who's a welder, and he built an expanded metal like barrier between the passenger compartment of the van and where all the gear was because we had been warned, you know. Like little big things like that and little things like when you're done with your set, get all your equipment off stage. Don't be taking cymbals off stands while the other band is waiting to put their stuff on stage. Little bits of professional information like that. Get yeah. passed over tables at Hendershot's Coffee or, or Jittery Joe's or, you know, the taco stand. Like someone will tell you, like, do this, don't do that. Yeah. It's really valuable stuff, you know. So, That's amazing you know, really, and really great to think about. Yeah. Yeah, it's like finishing school. Like, you know, you learn to play music when you're a teenager, but then you move here and you find out how to apply it. You know? Oh, I mean, and, and not not to mention, I mean, just like if we talk about it like finishing school, I'm just around so many more uh, students. I have a much bigger student body of people who are going through that finishing school and people who are who are, you know, trying to crack the code of their own of their own livelihoods and their own right. creativity. And right, um, right. I've been here and I've, the, the wheels have not stopped turning. Um, yeah. you know, once I got over kind of the basic, like moving funk and got in with my, with my group of folks, I mean, I'm shit's going on and I'm, right. and I'm liking it. And I wanted to, and I wanted to in- include this venture as, as part of it. Um, yeah. Just there are some great tidbits of information that you just passed on along to me that I will forever have on an episode. I'm like, I I can now record these conversations and make sure that I keep them. And um, yeah, one of the things I like about Athens is it's re- there's not a like, you know, there's an old Abraham Lincoln quote: two ear, two crows on the same ear of corn are seldom friends for long. And I see that in a place like Nashville or New York or LA where there's a finite number of gigs. Everybody's chasing them. But Athens has never been about chasing a dollar. So it's less competitive here and people find a way to make a way for each other. And I really love that about this place. Absolutely. Nail on the head. I was just thinking to myself, you know, driving around towards the Ocoee connector in somewhere in between four and five. And I'm like, you know, if I was just trying to make a run and go do a simple errand and just hop in my car in Atlanta, I mean, around four o'clock, like, good luck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, 
I never really run into a lot of noticeable traffic unless I'm like, you know, oh, I'm really in five o'clock traffic on on Prince or on or on Millage or or something like that. But I mean, I just that's that's another thing that I I love. It's just like this is the the city moves at my speed, but also in a in a way that's very friendly to musicians and and we're always like how can we help each other out i want to include you in this i mean right and i'm really and i'm really learning from that like i really want to offer opportunities to people who are very promising but like maybe have more room to learn and uh and and give them a leg up because that's what people have done for me yeah athens is really good like that yeah have you interviewed Jay Gonzalez? I haven't, but I really want to. Well, I'm going to hang out with him tomorrow. Um, I'll I'll uh, I'll mention we talked, and I'll I'll uh, I'll pitch it. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'd appreciate that. He's a cool guy. Yeah, yeah. He he he's really great, and uh, just a just kind of a pop genius. But I think we're going to go. If just, I interview him and I interview you, then Justin's just going to have to get in here and fucking do it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll throw that to Pete too. I may, I may need him to to double up and do one for me as well. But you know, um, I, I I'm really trying to reach it all our, in all artistic, uh, wavelengths. And, and in fact, my my second interview is on Thursday, and I'm interviewing a, a friend of mine who I grew up with, and she lives in Nashville now, and she's actually a food writer and editor for a magazine. Super cool. And so we wanted to talk about like the process of recipe making and, you know, and, and just sort of the, um, the whole culinary culture that she has absorbed. Uh, man, doing I, that. I can't wait to hear that. <laughs> cause I'm a big, you know, I, I don't like the term foodie cause it implies that you care about like who the hot chef is. Whereas yeah. I'm way more interested in finding the best like bowl of pozole or the, like the next amazing dollar 50 taco. But yeah, I care about food a lot. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Well, I plan on getting, you know, six or seven of these interviews under my belt and then figuring out how to uh, uh, structure them into a show and then I'll just start releasing them once I find my groove, you know. I think that I think that's probably the best plan of action for me. Well, in any way I can help, just ask. Well, I, I appreciate you immensely just for, for coming on and talking. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we did it. First episode with Patrick Ferguson. Done, baby. How was that? Patrick, are we still moving to France? Maybe. We'll see. Anyway, golly, what a pleasant conversation. He's just a fountain of knowledge, isn't he? I want to thank you so much for listening to the first episode. The intro and outro music is brought to you by Mr. Kel Kellum from his album called Adding to the Ashes, which you can purchase on Bandcamp or stream on all of the streaming things. The Artworks Artwork is brought to you by Mr. Cody Rogers. Thank you, Cody. And my name is Spencer Thomas. If you are interested to hear more about my music career, 
You can go to Spencer Thomas Songs on Instagram, Spencer Thomas Songs on Facebook, Spencer Thomas Songs on Bandcamp, and you can find all of my tunes. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Artworks. Respect and gratitude. Have a wonderful day.